Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hi, everybody, and welcome to Invested. I'm Danielle Town. This week, I want to say thank you to everyone who sent in such good emails, so much content, so much deep research and thought and questions about Netflix. So what we're doing is we're preparing for that episode, or maybe multiple episodes knowing us, starting next week. And everybody who sent in an email, I will be responding to you this week, so look out for that. And the email submission is now closed on Netflix. Don't send me any more. I mean, you can send more emails, but I'm not going to guarantee I'm going to read them or put them on the show. But everybody who's sent them in so far, we're going to talk about them. So fantastic. Thank you. And this week, to prepare for that process coming up, diving deeply into Netflix, I want to play an interview I did with Cheryl Einhorn, who wrote an excellent book about decision making in investing. This is the crux of the matter. How do we make a decision about a company with a future that is uncertain, that may be incredible or may not be? And the information we have right now is limited. So that's the work she does. And she was an investigative reporter at Barron's for years, focused deeply on investigating companies. So her work is filled with experience and knowledge and practice about how to make that final decision. Enjoy listening to Cheryl, and we will be back next week with Netflix. Thanks, everybody. Hey, everybody, and welcome to Invested. I'm Danielle Town, and I'm so lucky to be here today with Cheryl Einhorn. Cheryl Einhorn is the creator of the Area Method, which she's going to tell us all about. It's a decision-making system to solve complex problems. So obviously in investing, we're all trying to solve for the problem of which companies do we put our hard-earned money into? And that's what she's going to tell us about today. She just wrote an entire book about it, Investing in Financial Research, a Decision-Making System for Better Results. And she also is the author of the award-winning book, Problem Solved. She teaches at Columbia Business School. She's won several journalism awards for her investigative stories about business and economics and political topics. Cheryl, welcome. Thank you so much for being on Invested. Thank you so much for inviting me. I'm thrilled to be with you. So how did you get into this stuff? I mean, obviously, decision making is your area of interest. How did you turn that into a book about investing? Was it through your journalism? Absolutely. So my background, as you mentioned, is in investigative journalism. And for a decade, I was an editor and columnist at the business magazine Barron's. Hmm. And so at Barron's, each of us was tasked with writing about companies and actually taking a viewpoint for the investor. And I ended up, while I was there, specializing what you might call the bearish company story. Those are stories that take a skeptical look at a company's finances or at their strategy. And a lot of times when those stories came out, 
the share price would fall a lot. Sometimes the stock exchange would halt the stock of that company. A couple of times companies went out of business. One time a CEO went to jail for 10 years. Wow. And another time a company was raided by the FBI. And so as these stories were being written, I just began to think about the fact that although journalism really celebrates telling truth and really making transparent things that can help the public, I also realized that there's a real human toll to these stories. Hmm. It's not just somebody's investment account. It could be their retirement account. It could be your ability to work at one of these companies, or you could be a customer of their product and services. And one of the companies in particular that I wrote a story about that had a very big impact was at that time, the largest maker of diabetic test kits. Hmm. And so this is a company that people were really relying on for their health. And so as I was writing these stories, I just started thinking about, well, who am I? Right? I have this nice background as sort of a middle, middle class kid from outside of Boston, but how do I know that I'm actually coming to a good decision when I'm looking at companies and assessing their investment potential? And yeah. so at the time, there was also this new research coming out about the fact that we're all flawed thinkers. And they, these books were telling us basically to be more aware. Like and the I thought, well, economics canon that was coming out. Absolutely. All those kind of books. And I just started thinking about that's kind of hubris in my estimation to think that I could be looking at a data set and all of a sudden say, well, I'm going to be objective now. And to think that I could be right. If I don't know where my thinking flaws are, where my assumptions and judgments are really coming from, how am I going to be able to challenge them? And so I just thought about, well, given my background in research as an investigative journalist, maybe I could put together a system that would actually instead invert the problem and go all in on this idea that I'm a flawed thinker. And if I could do that, then could I set up a construct to control for it and counteract some of these mental shortcuts, focus better on the incentives of others, stakeholders and sources mm -hmm. who I'd be talking to writing these stories, and really think about expanding my knowledge or improving my judgment. So, so that's sort of how this came together. I want to hear the details of the area method, but before we get to that, I'm just stuck on this idea that you were assigned to write the bearish case against these. No, I wasn't. Oh, you No, were I wasn't. I was not assigned. What generally happened, Barron's is really a writer's paper. So I would come up with the story idea and then I would research that particular company to see, well, you know, would this make for an interesting story for Barron's? And if it did, what kind of a story? Would it be a story that would end up being a long, recommending that people buy the shares? Or would it end up being a bearish story where I'd recommend maybe shorting those shares? And I just sort of ended up specializing in, on the bearish side, in part because the more stories that I wrote that took a skeptical look at a company, the more people would come to me with ideas and say, I think this might be something you're interested in. I see. Gosh, that's so interesting. So you were kind of an analyst, but in that role, but just from a different viewpoint, from the, the viewpoint of journalism and, and putting the case down on paper. That's exactly right. And I think that's really what the journalists at Barron's do. They really are financial analysts. Um, and, and what they bring um, 
that is different than a classic financial analyst is also a very strong ability to have the qualitative research Hmm. that can really put into context the quantitative research that we all want to do when we're assessing an investment opportunity. Yeah. And I will say that for people like me, for people listening, and like we are trying to do this on our own, the biggest question I get is how do you do the qualitative research? So like, how do you handle management? How can you tell if they're trustworthy? All those kinds of questions. So let's get to that. But first, can you give me the basics of the area method that you developed? Absolutely. So AREA is an acronym for the steps of my decision-making process. And the decision-making process, the update to the research and pedagogy related to decision-making is in part that it is a perspective-taking system. So why perspective-taking? Well, perspective-taking gives you a beautiful two-for-one. By stepping out of your own perspective and walking in the footsteps of the other stakeholders involved in your decision, you not only get close up on their incentives and motives, but you're gaining distance on yourself. And that can help bubble up these assumptions and judgments, the cognitive biases, so that you can then examine them with evidence. So it's almost the opposite of Google, if you think about it. Right now, to begin a lot of our research, we type into Google what we want to know. And all of a sudden, we're sitting in every perspective. So what's the problem with that? It means that you, as a reasonable person, have difficulty running your truth meter. So what Aria says is instead, let's separate out our sources of information and get close up one at a time on them so that we can have an opportunity to develop this truth meter. And in each stage of the process, as we're going into a new perspective of information, we can have an opportunity to vet that information. So the first A in area is absolute information from close up on the target of your decision. And in this case, since we're talking about investing, it would be the company that you are thinking about researching. So if you're thinking about- Absolute, and that goes straight into the, the company itself. And it begins even there with what is considered the least influenced information. So let's just take Delta Airlines which is one of the examples that I talk about in Investing in Financial Research, my new book. So you would go into the SEC filings for Delta, but many people start right away with the management discussion. And so what I've learned from my years of looking at investment opportunities is go into the numbers first. Now, not all decisions should be made purely based on the numbers, but the numbers that they provide are going to tell you what they think is important. And so you look at the numbers and you look at the labeling of the tables and you can see what do they seem to say to you as a reasonable person. Then you can go back to the management discussion and say, well, how does management describe the numbers? Now you're already setting up an ability to vet that information because you've looked at it and just asked yourself as a reasonable person, what do I think it means? What is the financial story? And then you can say, well, does management replicate what I think as a reasonable person? If they say something different, why might that be? And are you able to basically already challenge that because you've looked yourself just to see what it means. So that's an example of absolute one step in that part of the process. The next concentric circle, the R of area, is relative information. Think of it like secondary or tertiary sources. They're sources somehow connected to your target, 
but not from the target itself. And so sample steps there would be an industry map. So for Delta, you might put it into its broader ecosystem of the other airlines that it really competes against. And you'll get a sense, therefore, that there are sort of big national carriers, and then there are these ultra low cost carriers, and then there are international carriers that are set up with a very different and often heavily subsidized business model. And you would also do a literature review. And it's in this literature review where you would look at, well, what do industry sources have to say? What do the major newspapers and press have to say? What might regulators, or academicians have to say. And so you're beginning again to set up a way to vet the information from absolute. The E in area is actually two E's. It's exploration and exploitation. I call them the twin engines of creativity. And they're about getting beyond document-based sources and upgrading your research in exploration by identifying good prospects and asking them great questions. It's interviewing. And then in exploitation, turning your lens inward on yourself as a decision maker to examine your assumptions against evidence. And here I give you creative exercises that I've learned from fields like the intelligence community, from investigative journalism, and so on. And then the final A, analysis, helps you to really think about how could your investment even fail before you've initiated it and helps you to put all the pieces of information back together so that you can come to conviction on your decision. Wow. Wow. I, I have to say, as I was reading your book, I kept smiling because essentially it's the exact process that my dad taught me to do when he taught me about investing. And yet the way you talk about it is just so careful and like more detailed. And so I just felt like it fleshed out everything I had learned um, in such a fantastic way, like exploitation, essentially inverting the problem. Like Charlie Munger always says, Jacoby said, invert, always invert, right? Right. I mean, these are the the gurus of investing and you're taking it and, and just turning it into kind of more like plain language. Okay, here's what you do. Um, one thing I loved in your, I think it's in the A, in a, yeah, in analysis, you call it a pre-mortem that you do on a company. What's that all about? So it's the opposite of the post-mortem where the joke is everybody benefits but the patient because the patient has died and it's the <laughs> autopsy that the doctors are doing. So the patient so is dead in a post-mortem. The patient is dead, that's right. Before the patient dies. Right, so what I think is so powerful about this is it asks you, even now, let's say you're gonna recommend shorting shares of Delta, for instance, or you're thinking about doing that, it says, tell the story of how you're wrong. Tell the story of your failure. And by sitting down at a computer or with a piece of paper and actually logically writing out the individual steps, you can not only see what can go wrong, but even more important, you get an opportunity to set up safeguards to prevent it from failing in that way. And you hold yourself accountable as a researcher and a decision maker, because you've now seen how it can fail and you've set up a construct to try to safeguard against that. And so you're preventing yourself from falling prey to having an evolving hypothesis. And that's very powerful and a more rigorous way to think about how to come to conviction on a high stakes decision, like allocating your own capital. Yeah, absolutely. What kind of safeguards would you put in place? 
Well, so for instance, with something like um, the investment in Delta, um, which I talk about, as I said in the book, one of the things had to do with the fact that um, they were very highly rated by business travelers. And so they were actually able to charge more per ticket price than other airlines. But as many of us know who fly, there are now all these ultra low cost carriers who are heavily entering the market. And if you all of a sudden noticed, for instance, that some of the routes that Delta tends to fly now had competition from one of these ultra low cost carriers, could you be looking for times where ticket prices were coming down? And if they were coming down, that is something that you could be watching for and a safeguard that you could set up is you could say to yourself, if I see that this compression is happening and is happening on major routes that are very important to Delta, maybe that's a sign for me that I want to reevaluate whether my initial thesis is still intact or whether I think that I may want to either be pulling it back or actually just closing the position out. Got it. So it's essentially uh, identifying in advance triggers that would change the story that you've written about the company, that would change the way you view about the company. And as you know, what I talk about in terms of how you set up going about solving the complex problem is that you identify this vision of success, right? What needs to happen in the outcome of the decision to know that it's worked for you and for you to identify your critical concepts. And the critical concepts are the one, two, or three things that help you deeply and creatively investigate how to get to that vision of success. So in the Delta example, one of the critical concepts had been that they had been able to charge more than other carriers. And so that would show by the pre-mortem, for instance, thinking about that a, a critical concept that you decided was imperative to stay in place in order for the investment thesis to remain intact had been broken. Yeah, I mean, so much of investing to me anyway is emotional and setting up structures to accept our own our own emotions, our own ups and downs, our own reactions to reality. Doing this kind of thing and having it set up in advance is one really excellent, reliable way to do that because that way when things show up, you're not caught by surprise. You're not spending three days right. in shock trying to figure out what to do about it. You've already thought about it with a clear head. So then when you know, the sky is falling around you and all the stocks are <laughs> dropping to the floor, you can hopefully um, have an attitude of anti-fragility and actually gain from that situation. Is that part right. of why you put this sort of structure in place? It's part of why I put it in place. And what I love about area is that it builds a beautiful audit trail, right? So in the absolute and the relative phases, you're collecting document-based sources and you are putting it into your area journal, which you know many people keep a journal, but this is one way to organize it, where you're actually recording what you've learned and then very important, so what? What does it mean for my research? And what is it telling me to do next? Then in the exploration, you're talking to people and conducting interviews, also recording them in your journal. And then in exploitation, you've done these exercises, which really help to tease out some of these assumptions and judgments that we make 
and hold them accountable with evidence or help them to fade away. And then in the final analysis, you're asking yourself about what could still go wrong, what failures of data or analysis you might have. And so you have a written record of your work and your thinking as a decision maker, which not only allows you after the decision has been made to basically see how it plays out and see what went right for you, where might you have been lucky, what went wrong that you want to do differently so you can update and iterate how you think about things, but it also allows other people to be able to replicate that work. And so I think this idea of really building a book of ourselves as a decision maker and having an audit trail is something that can continually improve our work and our thinking. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You say in the book that writing it down is very important as opposed to just going through this process in your own head. Why is that? Well, it's partly because, and I'm going to talk about this. I was just selected for a TED Talk in a couple of weeks. It's because, thank you. I'm very excited about it. It's because our inner voice often changes what we thought we knew. We are situational decision makers, right? So faced with the same decision in two different scenarios, one we're hungry, one we're not, one we're tired, one we're with a certain group of friends, one it's noisy in the background, whatever it is, we may see that same situation differently. And so what tends to happen is if we're just holding it in our head, we may allow ourselves to have these evolving hypotheses. And we may not be really remembering correctly the circumstances that really held sway over how we made the decision. And so writing it down, writing is thinking. That's what I say in the book. And so really committing it to paper forces you to use language and tone in the way that you construct your sentences And it is there for you to look back on so that you know what you were thinking at the time. I couldn't agree more. I find that when I have to write down my analysis, yes, like straightforward facts. Okay, that's helpful to kind of see it laid out. But the part that really helps me is where I have to actually write out in sentences what my argument is either for or against or both with the inversion a company because I can sort of have like, I feel like I kind of have a good sense of it in my mind. But when you have to actually type out those words, you sort of realize where you're making leaps. And those leaps are where you get into trouble. And I think the other thing with that is that when you're writing something down, you can look at it and say, have I written something that's purely qualitative? Hmm. So as you mentioned, I teach at Columbia Business School. And I teach investing there. I um, have a course that I've taught for many years now called Advanced Investment Research. And it really, it teaches the area method, um, which is, you know, a combination of investigative journalism and financial analysis. And what I find with my students, and these are generally people who are very comfortable with numbers, is even then 
they will write out something that is qualitative. And when I say to them, you've got to back it up with evidence, go find a number that actually pins down what you're saying. It can't be some growth, how much growth, Mm. over what period of time, based on what historical track record, do you think that that might be possible for Walmart, for instance? And so having to really quantify your qualitative statements obviously takes a little bit more time than just writing it down. But what you're doing is you're making your work work for you. And as you know, when you are investigating a stock, there is a lot of information. And you don't want to have to remember, this was in you know last year's fourth quarter report on page two. So what you really need to do is you do need to write down not only the qualitative statements, but to put some numbers to it as well. Yeah. I just, I'm like nodding my head like crazy. This is so helpful. Um, So now management, tell us how on earth do you figure out um, using the area method, these qualitative questions, like is somebody trustworthy? Are the articles I'm reading articles that have actually been real well-researched or am I in like right now I'm reading about Theranos? Am I in a a Theranos situation, which was not public, of course, but you know, the same kind of thing. Am I in an Enron situation? How do you figure that sort of thing out? So first I agree. I read the Theranos book about six months ago and it's a page turner. Um, Bad blood. And and also, right. And also reminiscent of some other books that are, um, that are in that genre. Um, I'm actually reading Black Edge now, which is about the insider trading scandal at SAC, Steve Cohen's. Oh, interesting. I'll have to read that one. Um, Black Edge. Yes, Black Edge. Um, So here's what I would say about management. In the absolute phase, there's several things that you can look at. One thing that I think is very interesting and that there's no right answer on, which is I think part of what makes it a great part of the puzzle to look at, is by going into the proxy from the company, you can see what's the incentive compensation plan and why do they think that this is reasonable. If a company says that they're using, for instance, a two-year look in order to determine their performance metrics, well, so what? Why two years? Is that reasonable for this industry? Is it not reasonable? And how is the performance metrics structured? Is it by EBITDA or is it by something else? And what are the problems that might exist if it's based on EBITDA? Do you then end up with a very acquisitive company that's looking to get more revenues? For instance, and so are you, you can also at the incentives that are built in for these executives. You're looking at the incentives. You're looking at, for instance, why was it set up this way? You're looking at, for instance, are these metrics that are really meaningful to the company? And you're looking at their explanation for how this has gone. And so you can do that in absolute. You can also consider in absolute, what kind of a capital allocator do I have? And by listening to the earnings calls, for instance, you can think about what does management talk about as their objectives? And they also should mention the same ones, I would hope, in their SEC filings. And then you can look at, well, how's the company done financially against those actual metrics? So you can think about the capital allocation piece, which is critical. In your relative research, you get a chance to say, well, okay, let's say Delta is using three years as their 
number of years against which the performance metrics are set up. Well, so what? What do other major airline companies look like? And do they look similar? And then the other thing that's really nice, again, because you're putting your research from Absolute into a broader next concentric circle of information, you can also say, well, even if the airline industry, for instance, happens to use a similar number of years for their incentive compensation plans, what are best practices in terms of setting up incentive compensation plans? And is the airline industry a good example of that or a poor example of that? Again, you're getting a chance to vet how you've seen the information that management is giving you. And you also have an opportunity to hear from news articles, as you mentioned, but also from industry sources, mm. um, what they think about the individual as a capital allocator. In exploration, you can then talk about and ask questions to other people from what you've gained by thinking about management in absolute and in relative and so on. And so I think it gives you multiple ways to really get close up on trying to hold management accountable for what it says it's going to be doing, how it's paid for that, and how management is perceived. Do they actually do what they talk about in their in their shareholder letter, in their earnings reports? Do they call back to it if something that they said would happen isn't going to ha- didn't right. happen? That kind of candor and honesty and um, and accountability for what they said they would do, and then the incentives that they have set up by their compensation structure and what they've actually done with the funds that the company has as far as how they've allocated the capital of the company. That's exactly right. And one of the things that I would just um, make sure to say is, you know, so let's say you're reading the call transcript or you're listening to the call. You can't listen to just one because how would you put it into context? How would you hear how management actually interacts on the call? And one of the things that I talk about in the book is that these calls have become much more scripted over time. Mm. And oftentimes that initial piece where they talk about the financial results may not even be live. They may have recorded that ahead of time. So that management has really had a chance to think about their words. So going back and listening, right. So going back and listening to a couple of conference calls can really give you a sense of, is management focused on the same thing over time or are they continually moving the bar? So this is a lot of questions that, you know, we kind of have to keep track of. In the book, you lay them out in uh, cheetah pauses, which I love that name. Can you tell me more about cheetah pauses? Absolutely. So one of the other updates to the research and pedagogy related to decision-making is that area addresses strategic stops. And I think when you're making a complex decision, knowing when to pause in your work and what to do in those pauses is critical, but no other decision-making system does that. So I wanted to think of a memorable way for people to think about these pauses, and so I called them cheetah pauses. And the reason why the cheetah is that its prodigious hunting skill is not its ability to accelerate like a race car. It's actually that it decelerates by up to nine miles an hour in a single stride. That's far more important than the acceleration. Because now you're talking about agility, flexibility, and maneuverability, all the things you need in a quality research and decision-making system. So everywhere that I suggest a cheetah pause, I have a cheetah sheet. And so you can think of them like the graphic organizers of the area method. The cheetah sheets 
tell you what to do in those stops. They either tell you where to look for information or what questions to ask of your data and your analysis. Yeah, it's a list of questions that you put after every section. And there's a lot of these questions, I will tell you, Cheryl. Do you even know how many questions you have in the book? I know how many cheetah sheets I have. I don't know exactly how many questions. So that's a very good question. And I should, I should know that. But the reason why is when it comes to a financial investigation and problem solved, which is set up very similar to investing in financial research, problem solved is my first book. And it is about personal and professional complex decision-making, whereas investing in financial research is on financial and investment decisions. So the reason why there are more cheetah sheets and questions in investing in financial research is that different types of companies and different parts of the growth cycle of a company would demand different questions. Mm -hmm. And so you wouldn't want to ask necessarily the exact same questions of a mature company as a very quickly growing company, you might not want to ask questions that are about having a company that's very capital intensive to a company that has a capital light model. And so these questions are meant to be guides. And again, it's meant to be like the cheetah, agile and flexible. So you're not meant to answer all of them. You're meant to look at them and to think about which ones are relevant to what I'm doing and they can then key you up as to where to look for more information or what kind of analysis to do. That's super helpful because I took it as more of a checklist. Um, and of course, you know, a lot of investors use checklists. Um, Monish Pabrai famously goes through every single point on his checklist. And I think he has about 100 items on the checklist. And even he says that's maybe too many. And so I was reading through it going, wow, this checklist is just amazing and so detailed, um, but so enormous that I actually wonder if it would stop you from ever making a decision. Let's take one set of cheetah sheets that I think um, really no other book like this has, but came out of another class that I was teaching at the business school. Um, and that is a series of cheetah sheets about spotting signs of fraud and deception. Mm, which so is, these course, the thing everybody wants to make sure they get right. Exactly. And so hopefully there's not that much fraud. And if you find some of the signs in those cheetah sheets, they may not at all be an indication of fraud. If you find a lot of those things that I list in those cheetah sheets, you may well want to ask some of the questions that they are talking about in terms of what the company might be doing in its behavior. And so those cheetah sheets are there to help build your awareness and for you to think about, is this relevant to me? And one of, again, the updates to how I approach decision-making is that decision-making has previously been something that's very siloed. It's something that you are making. And yet none of us operate in a vacuum. We are all operating in some kind of an environment or ecosystem. And so what the cheetah sheets are doing are helping you to think from the perspective of the company, of the other storytellers, of its investment narrative, for instance, of let's say 
regulators, right? Which is what you're thinking about in terms of fraud and deception. What's on the wrong side, mm-hmm. right? And so that's why I gave you a much more comprehensive list of questions to think about. And you'll know as you're going through your investment research that today, if you're looking at Delta, a certain number of cheetah sheets are applicable. And tomorrow, when you're looking at McDonald's, it may be overlapping in some cases, but it's also going to be different because they're different businesses. So it's really meant to be more of a, a, a resource, a reference than a checklist. I would say that that's exactly right. You know, that it's meant to be agile and flexible and to meet you where you are. One other note that I would put on to that is that sometimes you might be looking to capitalize on a short-term trading opportunity. Right? When that comes up, again, you need something that's agile and flexible. You'll look through the different parts of the process, you'll look at the cheetah sheets, and you'll decide which parts you want to do. And anything that you do that is new still ups your game in terms of the rigor that you are applying to your decision making. Yeah. I mean, that's how I took it. I just, I finished this book on my Kindle and I just thought to myself, I have to get it in actual, like actual book form and hardcover because I want to have it on my shelf, like a reference textbook so that, I mean, I have my own checklist, which is relatively short, but I want to make sure, you know, if there's something I'm sort of mulling over or trying to think like, what have I forgotten? I want to pull that your book off of the shelf and go, okay, good. I can read this cheetah sheet on the fraud section and just sort of jog my memory, use it as a real, um, as a real sort of reference that um, I'm trying to think of like, what's even stronger than a reference because I just feel like every question is in here and I'm so excited to have it written down so that I don't have to worry about myself thinking of these questions. Well, thank you. And that is why I also have um, in the table of contents, where each cheetah sheet is Mm -hmm. so that long after you've read the book the first time, and I do recommend that you read it all the way through so you can see how the system works, then you can simply turn to the cheetah sheets that you want to go to. And on the top of the pages where there is a cheetah sheet, there's a little cheetah tag, like a little bookmark in the side, again, really meant to make the book useful to you. And I'm going to put up on my website in the next couple of weeks, a way for people also to just buy the cheetah sheets after they've bought the book so that they will be able to just have it the way that you're talking about and be able to constantly have the reference. But you do need to see them in the context of the text to really see how they're being applied. Because as you know, in the book, I give many examples from my students over the years of how they specifically have applied the different parts of the process to companies that they were evaluating. Exactly. Yeah. I think you really need to understand the context as with any list of questions, you know, you can't just go by the question itself. It's entirely about the context that you use it in. So as you, um, like, let's say I go through the area process and I've gathered all my information and I've done an incredible job, um, taking and I've written it all down and I've done everything right. How do I make a decision after all of that? Well, so what I take you through in the book, and as you mentioned, I am in these, I'm recommending that at these cheetah pause moments, that when you are slowing down to speed up the efficacy of your work, that you're also summing up 
each part of the process into a thesis statement. And the thesis statement is basically saying, so what, what did I learn here? What does it mean for where I am in my investment research? And what does it point to for what I should do next? So when you're in the analysis phase, I guide you to bring these thesis statements around the conference table and to sit down with them and to line them all up. And you essentially will have a truncated version of your entire area process. So you can see what work you've done and what you thought about it to help you come to conviction. And that is generally once you've been through the A, the R, the E, and the E, and the final A, you're able to do this and sit down and say, well, now I'm ready. I can tell that I have looked at the evidence. I've talked to people. I've looked from different perspectives. I've thought about my own thinking. I then thought about failure. And now looking at all the thesis statements together, I know what I'm going to do. I know what I think my target is going to be for the share price. I know what length of time, for instance, I'm expecting the target price to be reached in. And I have a system that is going to make sure that I don't have an evolving hypothesis and give me clues on when I want to exit. There's often a feeling that there's always more information. There's always something out there we haven't found. Is this is that how you know that you've gotten enough info that you've you've got these thesis statements around you and you're you're feeling satisfied with them? So the area method is not about more information. It's about targeted and focused information. One of the hardest parts of complex problem solving for people is this idea about where do you start? There's so much information out there. And so what area says is invert that. Come up with your vision of success, right? I I think I'm going to be going long, you know, Delta Airlines if my critical concepts turn out to be true. Hmm. By being in the absolute phase, you're helping to identify those critical concepts, the couple of financial levers, for instance, that you really think are going to make or break an investment thesis. So let's say it is, again, that they will continually be able to maintain higher than average ticket prices. And I'm just making this up as I go. Let's say that it's that there are well hedged and have fuel prices under control. And let's say as a third one that you know, the ultra low cost carriers will not really be able to penetrate their most profitable routes. So then you are deeply and creatively investigating those few things that are going to get you to your vision of success. And so you're not looking for the most information. The idea then is to constantly update and iterate those critical concepts so that you can really figure out what you think is going to matter the most in terms of the financial performance of the stock in this case, which at times is different than what's going to happen to the business. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Charlie Munger says, make sure you can understand the company, make sure it has a strong competitive advantage, make sure that the management has integrity and buy it at a good price with a margin of safety. And that's all you need. Which is obviously a whole series of complicated steps that have to be executed and thoughtfully done. <laughs> but I think what you were just saying is, is that in some, but, but much more like here are the steps. So Cheryl, thank you so much for being uninvested today. It was so much fun to talk to you. 
Thank you. It's been such a pleasure to be with you. And of course, as people read the book and they have questions, they can feel free to contact me through my website, which is areamethod.com. And they'll, they'll see examples of area and have a way to be able to contact me as well. Perfect. Areamethod.com. And the book again is called Investing in Financial Research, a Decision-Making System for Better Results. Cheryl Einhorn, thank you. Thank you. Hi, guys. Thanks for listening to Invested. If you enjoyed this episode and you want more information or to listen to additional episodes, visit our website at investedpodcast.com and sign up for my virtual workshop right there. Spots are definitely limited for this event. I'm not kidding. They really are. They sell out very quickly. So everything discussed on this podcast, by the way, is either my opinion or it's Danielle's opinion. And it's really important. It's not to be taken as investing advice because I am not your financial advisor, nor have I considered your personal situation as your fiduciary. So remember that you're on your own here. This podcast is for your entertainment and education only. And I really hope you enjoyed it.